0: Good evening to you all, and welcome to the LSC. I'm Sandra Jovchelovic, and it is my pleasure this evening to introduce, to welcome and to introduce Professor Fatali Mogadam, who will deliver tonight this academic session's final lecture in the Psychology as Social Science Public Lecture Series. Before I introduce Professor Mogadam, let me just say a few words about the series. Psychology as Social Science is a program of public lectures on the relations between psychology and the social sciences. Hosted by the Institute of Social Psychology and generously supported by the LSE Pro Directors Discretionary Fund, the lectures aim to draw uh, attention to the potential and the necessity of integrating psychology in the larger intellectual program of the social sciences which is bringing together psychologists, philosophers, and social scientists to reflect on how the disciplinary disciplinary traditions of psychology have engaged with the social sciences and addressed topics that are central to both. The lectures also seek to emphasize the past, the present, and the future of psychology in the school, where from the mid-20th century onwards, the project and the vision of a societal psychology took shape. Now, let me say a few words about our speaker tonight, although he does not need introductions. uh, Fatali Mogadam is Professor of Psychology in the Department of Psychology and Director of the Conflict Resolution Program in the Department of Government at Georgetown University, USA. Professor Mogadam is widely known and respected for his work on the cultural and societal dimensions of human behavior, and in particular, on the psychology of intergroup conflict, subjective justice, radicalization, and terrorism. In 2007, he was recipient of the prestigious Life Achievement Award of the American Psychological Association Society for the study of peace, conflict, and violence. His books are too many to cite, but I will refer to uh, social psychology in cross-cultural perspective, the specialized society, the plight of the individual in an age of individualism, global conflict resolution, from the terrorist point of view, theories of intergroup relations, and more recently, Multiculturalism and intergroup relations, psychological implications for dem- democracy in a global context, and how globalization spurs terrorism. Fatali Mogadan's work has been tremendously inspirational for all of us who seek to sustain psychology as a social science. And we are delighted that he's contributing to the series and delivering tonight's lecture on the failure of both multiculturalism and assimilation and the new path of omniculturalism. Please join me in giving him a very warm welcome.
1: Thank you. Um, Can anyone hear me back there? Good. Uh, You should have this handout. Has it, it reached everybody? Yes, excellent. Well, I'm delighted to be here. It's really a pleasure and honor. Um, The LSC has a tremendous uh, history and tradition of public academic interaction. And it's wonderful to be participating in this project. Uh, What I thought I'd do is talk for about 45 minutes, and then we can have a discussion, because it's often in the questions and discussion that things get lively. Let me start from my own personal experiences because that's often how we get interested in a piece of research. Um, I was born in Iran. I came to uh, the United Kingdom very early. I was about eight years old with my family and uh, then went back to Iran after the revolution, went to Canada, uh, I've lived in the States for a long time now and um, have done work for the UN in different countries. And, one of the challenges that has always confronted me personally is uh, how I should behave. When you're living in England, how, how you should behave? Should you try to become English? When you're in America, should you try to be like the Americans? Uh, and this can, can influence everyday life, everyday interactions. For example, when I first went to America, uh, people would say, you know, how, how are you doing? And I would, in the English tradition, say, oh, okay, you know, not bad. Uh, head above water, that kind of thing. And uh, the head of the department at that time took me aside and said, we're very worried about you. <laughs> and I said, well, what's the matter? He said, well, we're, we're worried you're not feeling well or doing well. You're going to leave us. He said, no, what's the matter? And then then I learned that in America, when when they ask you, how are you doing? You say, I'm great, (laughs) I'm fantastic. And of course, in England, if you said to people, I'm great, they'd probably say you're an idiot. (laughs) So these, these very small scale interactions clue us in. The challenge we have, how much do we fit in? Let me start by talking about globalization because that's the theme of the presentation really the cha- the context. There are really two big very macro level processes right now that I can see. One is the traditional discussion about how we are becoming a global village. Assimilation is taking place. You know w- w- we can go from Uh, London to Bombay to uh, Beijing and wake up in a hotel and it seems like the same hotel. Uh, We can move from one country to another and experience very much the same things. Because the products we use are becoming global. The services we use are becoming global. Communications keeps us in touch with people all the time, everywhere. It seems as if the global village is taking shape. And certainly in places like Europe, where there is integration politically and economically, and in North America we have NAFTA. In different regions, it looks as though we are becoming one global village. However, at the same time, there's something else going on. A counter reaction to globalization and becoming a global village. And the counter reaction we can see in all kinds of separatist movements. Just as there is the European Union, we now have, of course, Scottish nationalism. And, of course, in Wales, they have all their street names in these long, long uh, signs that I can't read. In the Middle East, of course, there are all kinds of movements, separatist movements, so when we look around the world, it's not just a question of how quickly are we becoming global. It's also movements towards separation and fragmentation. I refer to this as fractured globalization. Referring to this contra- contradictory or apparently contradictory sets of movements at the macro level. How are we to make sense of this? Well. I suggest one way to do it is to look at the big picture, look at the global forces, and also think about the evolutionary context in which these forces are taking place. Of course, not forgetting the individual. One of the challenges in uh, social sciences is to link individual level processes to these macro processes. And uh, that's why I'm particularly thrilled to be at the LSE, where the social psychology unit does such great work on this. With respect to globalization, we need to distinguish between globalization as we would like it to be in theory and globalization in practice. In theory, one of the interesting things is how the ideals put forward by both left and right are quite similar in terms of their goals. For example, if we think about the Marxist goal of the proletariat classless society, well, it's one world without the government interfering because the government, of course, is seen as a suppressor representing the capitalist class. So you have this disillusion of the government and one world with no borders. If you talk to Libertarians, for example, in America, very right-wing, free market thinkers, they present a similar picture in the sense that they argue that the best of possible worlds is where one, there is no government, or there is a very limited government, and we have free trade, and the individual is free to move around as well in terms of geographical movement. So this notion of a global village free of central government intervention with free movement is common to left-wingers and right-wingers in some respects. Of course, there's huge differences in terms of political goals. However, globalization in practice is something else, as we see in the current economic downturn. Globalization in practice is leading to, or associated with, large scale disruptions in economies. Interconnectedness in a way that means that insecurity in one part of the world impacts other parts of the world. We have a new security situation so that even a place like Afghanistan, which has very limited material resources and is not particularly in a location where it is uh, important in terms of strategic location, even Afghanistan is seen as critical in terms of the security of the United States. So globalization in practice is leading us to all kinds of challenges that that the idealists had not foreseen here. How can we organize the world so that we have less conflict and we manage globalization in a better way? Now, to answer that question, it seems to me we have to start by asking, what are the limitations with respect to how we can change human beings? What are the limitations in terms of the malleability of individuals? And psychology has some very strong answers here. For example, uh, one of the common discussions is human beings should treat each other as human beings, they should not categorize each other into gender groups or ethnic groups or religious groups. And psychology tells us that actually categorization is a fundamental cognitive (coughs) process that is universal and that we do tend to quite naturally categorize each other. Another limitation seems to me to have been discovered recently by evolutionary psychologists when they focus on the unit size. If we think about our evolutionary past over the last couple of hundred years, most of the time we have lived in very small groups. Now we can quibble about what the number of that group would be, it might be 147, it might be 150, But we know it's a fairly small group. Right now, we live in very large cities, 20 million sometimes, 15 million. And one of our challenges is how do we organize ourselves given that our evolutionary past has trained us to function best in small groups? Another limitation that I see is with respect to change, what I've called the micro-macro rule of change. This is highlighted by literature on revolutions, and what's called the paradox of revolutions. We seem to be able to change things at the macro level much faster than at the micro level. Revolutions can occur overnight. We can change economic policy overnight. Technology can transform macro-level processes very quickly. But at the micro-level, getting change in how people think is typically much slower. If you look at the literature on the paradox of revolution, what you find is, again and again, revolutions are seen to fail. For example, when I went back to Iran, after the revolution there. In the first year of the revolution, we had euphoria. I was teaching uh, at the number of universities in Tehran. And in 79, everything was open. The revolution could have gone in many different directions. Women were completely free in the public sphere. Uh, There were a lot of very progressive movements. At the macro level, things had changed. Politically, there had been transformation. However, at the micro level, change was not taking place in how people thought, in how people related to one another. And it was almost as if there was a bottom-up movement that created another Shah in the shape of Khomeini. So another dictator was created almost from the bottom up. And it was very difficult. I was working on projects to do with literacy and other things at the time. It was very difficult to get people to change in their interpersonal relations and how they were thinking. It was much easier to get macro change achieved. So these are some possible limitations. What are the policies we have available in terms of how we organize ourselves? Given that we have globalization taking place very rapidly, given that we have vast movements of people around the world, given that places like England are becoming much more diverse in terms of religion, ethnicity, language, etc., how do we organize ourselves? I'm going to talk about the two traditional policies, assimilation and multiculturalism, and highlight what I see to be the psychological assumptions underlying these policies. Then I'm going to talk about an alternative to these policies and try to persuade you that the alternative is more promising. (coughs) Let me start with assimilation policy. Assimilation policy is traditionally associated with the United States, the so-called melting pot. I've talked about two different types of assimilation. One is minority assimilation, where minorities melt into the mainstream. For example, you can imagine minorities in England melting into the mainstream, becoming English in what's called the traditional English way, whatever that is. In America, it would be becoming American, taking on American values to American lifestyle in, in every way. A second form of assimilation is melting pot assimilation, where both minorities and majorities change. So what you have is a melting of different cultures to create a new culture. Uh, it's what somebody like Ralph Waldo Emerson would call the American Creed, something completely new that had never been seen before. These types of assimilation are slightly different, but their end goal is the same. It is to create a society that is as similar as possible. And there is good psychological evidence (coughs) suggesting that this is a good idea. For example, one of the strongest possibilities we have for a universal in social psychology is similarity attraction. Similarity attraction has been tested in many different domains. I tested it in Canada, which is a multicultural country, and found that it's robust there. By that I mean that in Canada we discovered that people will be more positively disposed towards others who they see to be like themselves. We studied this with about six different ethnic groups. We looked to see which other ethnic group people saw to be similar to themselves, and we discovered that similarity was the key to how much they are willing to interact with the other group. For example, would you like this other group to marry into your family, to be your neighbor, to be your coworker? All these questions linked up to how similar you thought this other group was to you. So the similarity attraction literature suggests that it's a good idea to have a society where people see themselves as more similar. And the notion is that, well, you're going to have fewer rifts you're going to have fewer possibilities for conflict. Another argument in favor of assimilation is meritocracy. Presumably, you want a meritocracy where everybody starts with similar possibilities for success. You want a society where people are on a level playing field if possible, especially in the education system. So, for example, if we consider minority children in schools, you want them to assimilate as quickly as possible, why? Because by taking on the majority language, the majority culture, they will be able to compete better. One of the traditional criticisms of testing the way it's done at the moment, is that testing in schools is biased against minorities. Why? Because it's largely reflecting the culture of the majority. If we accept that argument, then we have to accept that by taking the mainstream and absorbing minorities into the mainstream, we are giving the minorities a better shot at success. If they know the majority culture, then they can compete in that culture. So that's another argument in favor of assimilation. Another argument in favor of assimilation is related to what's called the contact hypothesis. Now the contact hypothesis has been around for a very long time, but it was formalized back in around 1954 by Allport in a book On prejudice and more recently it's been researched a lot. The basic idea is very simple. The more you have contact with people the more you will get to like them. The more you will become familiar with them, the the less threatening they will be to you. So the notion is that if majorities and minorities contact a lot they will be more harmonious. This this hypothesis has actually been very powerful in America. Uh, The desegregation legislation of the 1950s was based on this hypothesis. The notion is that um, assimilation will bring about more contact and that will lead to more liking across groups. So all these arguments seem to be for assimilation policy. However, there's also some weaknesses that I want to point out in this policy, and some of this, uh, some of the weaknesses are highlighted by research that's been initiated in, in, in England rather than North America. Uh, one of the series of studies uh, is, is known as the minimal group paradigm. Uh, the minimal group paradigm is simply this. Once you categorize people into groups, it can be a meaningless basis for categorization. You can categorize them on the basis of something that's completely trivial. Once you have categorized them, they will create meaning out of that categorization, and they will discriminate. Uh, Some of you may remember Jonathan Swift's Uh, discussions in Gulliver about uh, the different groups of people, uh, the little Indians and the big endians where there was a war being fought between people who broke their eggs at the little end and the people who broke their eggs at the big end. Well, the notion is that human beings just will take anything. They will take anything and fight over it. It doesn't have to be meaningful. They will give it meaning. The argument against assimilation here is that no matter how much you push people to become similar, there will always be the possibility of people finding differences. If it's not skin color, it could be ears. I mean, some people have longer ears than others, round noses. It's endless. If you go across cultures, the basis for discrimination varied and endless. So one of the arguments that seems to me quite powerful against assimilation is that no matter how much you push people to be similar, there will always be the possibility of constructing a basis for differentiation and for discrimination. Also, if we go back to the contact hypothesis, the contact hypothesis says that contact is good, but the research suggests it's only good under certain conditions. For example, slaves and slaveholders had a lot of contact, but the outcome was not always positive. So it's not just having contact. It's having contact under certain conditions. Now, that argument, um, for those of you who follow this literature, is is ongoing, because somebody called Tom Pettigrew recently did a lot of extensive meta-analyses and came up with the view that actually contact is good under any conditions. But there is a lot of discussion (coughs) about this. Let me move on to multiculturalism. Because in a lot of societies over the last 30 years, assimilation has seemed to be politically incorrect. The notion that when people come together, they should somehow be pushed to becoming one more similar. that has seemed to be somehow the wrong way to go. And multiculturalism has been seen as at least the more politically correct route. I spent uh, six years at McGill in Canada, and one of the uh, things I did there was to participate in research on multiculturalism. Um, I had an opportunity to sit down with a few other people, with Pierre Trudeau, who some of you probably remember, who was the initiator of multiculturalism policy. And his intention in bringing that policy into place in 72, was to try to work out a way in which cultural groups, linguistic groups, could feel confident in themselves and could relate to others without having conflict. Let me start by distinguishing between different types of multiculturalism. One type of multiculturalism I call laissez-faire multiculturalism. That is where groups come together such as, let's say, in the United Kingdom right now, people coming together from different parts of the world, as well as the indigenous population, and the market basically decides which groups remain distinct, which languages survive, and which don't. So it's a sort of market-based multiculturalism. And this is very much what it's like in cities like uh, Los Angeles and New York in the United States. Another form of multiculturalism is active multiculturalism. And here, the government directly and explicitly intervenes to help groups sustain their linguistic and cultural heritage. And active multiculturalism, was introduced first in Canada in 72, where they have a policy of multiculturalism within a bilingual framework. And then in Australia and New Zealand they followed, and in a number of other countries now, multiculturalism is actively pursued. In America, there is a hodgepodge right now. They're sort of experimenting in different states. Some more towards multiculturalism, some more towards assimilation. And the debate is fierce because uh, it relates to resources, especially in the education sector. Um, In education, some states are still experimenting with multilingualism and the state supporting multilingualism. Other places like California, they've had a backlash against multilingualism in schools. So there's a fight on at the moment. Um, one of the interesting groups active in this is called the English Only Movement. The English Only Movement is trying to establish English as the official language of the United States. The United States still does not have an official national language, so that that tug of war is going on. So active multiculturalism is where the government intervenes, and I believe in in the UK this is becoming the case where the government is more interventionist now. What was the idea behind multiculturalism policy as introduced in places like Canada? Well, central to this policy was the notion that minority groups actually want to retain their heritage cultures and languages. That These minorities don't just want to be absorbed into the mainstream. That's an interesting assumption. Uh, I tested that assumption in Canada, and I found it to be incorrect, actually. Uh, Some minority groups, or at least some individuals belonging to minority groups, want to become mainstream as soon as possible. Uh, their, Their motivations vary, but In terms of what they want to do, it's pretty clear some groups and some minorities within groups certainly do not want to stick out and be different. They would rather uh, be absorbed by the mainstream. Another assumption in multiculturalism is called the multiculturalism hypothesis. And the multiculturalism hypothesis is really a psychological hypothesis. If you go back to the original bill in 1972 in Canada, Trudeau used words and phrases that come straight from psychology. He said that when the government supports minorities to have confidence in their own heritage and pride in their own heritage, they will become open and accepting towards others and they will be more willing to interact and share their cultures. There is this notion that if I am confident in my own background, in my own heritage, I will be open to others. Now this is a wonderful idea, I think. Uh, It's certainly positive sounding and it, it seems progressive. However, when you look at the literature, the research on the multiculturalism hypothesis does not support that hypothesis. And I think there's good reason for it. Think of it historically. We can think of many examples of groups who've had pride and confidence in their heritage, but are not particularly open to others. Um, it seems to me that you know, the Nazis had quite a lot of pride in in their own heritage. They were not particularly open to others. Um, uh, If you think of groups that are fundamentalists right now who are willing to blow other people up, I'm sure they have a lot of pride and confidence in their heritage. So it seems to me that that link of having pride and confidence and therefore being open to others, that seems to me not to be a very strong uh, valid link. Another problem I see with multiculturalism, as it is being experimented in different countries, including in some ways in the UK, is that it leads us to cultural relativism. The notion that each culture has their heritage and should have pride in their heritage and should have, to a large degree, independence in how they do things. Well, that can lead to all kinds of problems. For example, uh, in the United States, there have been several cases where uh, legal disputes have been allowed to be sorted out according to the rules of the local culture. Now, that can be problematic. What if? My local culture is that, for example, wife-beating is a normal thing, and we should just do that. Now, do we allow that? Um, For example, in the UK, the whole discussion about Sharia law and whether it should be allowed in Islamic communities, Uh, the whole notion of whether the veil should be something that um, a family can uh, have imposed on their children or whether the children should be Uh, free to choose at the age of 18 or 21, or whatever it is. These discussions are inevitable if you're going to follow a multicultural policy, because they lead you to a cultural relativism where you have to question universals. You have to question the idea that we're going to have one set of rules and it applies to everybody. So I see a problem with multiculturalism on that front. Let me turn now to what I call omniculturalism, an alternative policy uh, that I think we might explore. Omniculturalism is put forward as a third alternative. And I see it as something that would be explored in relation to developmental processes. At the moment, if you go to American schools, I'm not sure, I haven't been to an elementary school here for years. But in America, as soon as you enter the school, You see slogans such as, every child is a star. We are all different, all these slogans about being special and being a star, and and of course, these are all attempts to boost self-esteem. The notion that the big problem we have in schools is low self-esteem. Uh, you know, whenever there's a shooting over there, they say, "Oh, that kid must have had low self-esteem." You know, the problem of the self self-esteem, and it's at the heart of multiculturalism, the notion that you have to build up self-esteem, and the way you do it is to give feedback that is positive, and is very much part of what's called the positive psychology movement. It's a huge movement. In terms of money, it is absolutely enormous. Uh, therapists are switching to positive psychology. You know, positive thinking, change people's attitudes about themselves and others. Uh, teach them to think positively and start early. Start with kids. So teachers are trained to give positive feedback. Nobody is ever a failure. Of course, everybody is a star. So. This kind of positive approach has some benefits, I think, but it also has some possible drawbacks. First of all, if you look at the evidence on self-esteem, one of the interesting things is that minorities don't actually have low self-esteem. Minorities typically through self-protection mechanisms, enjoy fairly high self-esteem. That is not the problem. The problem seems to be, in terms of uh, kids who go out and shoot and uh, those those kinds of disruptions, the problem seems to be sometimes elevated and very unstable self-esteem. People who come to view themselves as very special, as having high self-esteem, but without a basis. For example, um, I play tennis regularly. If I come to believe I'm the greatest tennis player in the world, that might be an an exaggeration. And then if you actually play me and I find out that you thrash me in the first five minutes, then obviously I'm going to feel more threatened. One of the problems we're having with multiculturalism right now is on this issue of self-esteem, both at the individual level, and at the group level, how to give feedback. It seems to me the problem is that we're focusing on differences too early. We're focusing on being special and being different, both at the individual level and at the group level, far too early. The remedy I'm proposing is that we start by actually doing the opposite, by teaching children about universals. So, omniculturalism begins with an emphasis on what human beings have in common. What makes a human being? And I believe that psychology has a lot to contribute here. We can talk about human commonalities, what human beings are like, what they are all like, what they share in terms of their cognitive functioning, etc. And focus on this so that within the first few years in their formal education, the focus, the stress, is not on differences, but on commonalities. Irrespective of whether you're talking to a kid who's a Muslim, a Jew, Christian, whatever, (coughs) the focus becomes on, on how human beings are similar in fundamental ways. Only when that is achieved do we switch to talk about how groups differ, how there are also differences across groups, for example, there are gender differences, there are differences across cultures, etc. So, omniculturalism is an attempt to try to Turn the tables and start by talking about commonalities rather than differences, and also turn away from the tendency that's crept into many schools now, where the emphasis is just on positive feedback. I don't see that as necessarily uh, constructive. Because if a kid is not doing well in math, I don't see it as very constructive to keep putting up slogans about every child is a star. It just is going to lead to problems. Um, And very exaggerated views about success possibilities. Uh, For example, if you look at surveys on what high schoolers in America think in areas like sport, uh, they're exaggerated views of how the possibilities for success are. Um, It's actually more likely for a black teenager to become a brain surgeon than to become uh, a professional basketball player. But they keep giving feedback, positive feedback, in areas like basketball. So these things have to be worked out. Now, is there any evidence that people would be willing to shift to this third alternative, to this omnicultural alternative. Have we got to a situation now where we're so involved in multiculturalism that it's going to be very difficult to shift gear and to start emphasizing another policy? Well, recently Uh, Together with some colleagues at Stanford, I did a survey. It was a national survey in these states. We surveyed 4,000 randomly selected Americans. And we gave them three alternatives in terms of policy. One was assimilation. One was multiculturalism. One was omniculturalism. And surprisingly, we found that about 70% actually went for omniculturalism. So I was delighted about this. However, however, minorities were an exception. Minorities preferred multiculturalism. And one of the reasons, I think, is because The ideology of multiculturalism as it stands now is more appealing to minorities. They seem to think that multiculturalism protects their interests in a better way. I don't believe that's the case. I don't believe that multiculturalism has yielded positive results for minorities. Because if you look at The actual performance of minorities in schools, in the economic center, what you find is that it is not multiculturalism that is allowing some groups to get ahead. It's actually quite different. It's a different form of thinking. It's not the thinking that says, I have to have pride in my heritage in the kind of multicultural way. Let me try to wind up before we have a discussion and questions. I'm presenting a big picture of our dilemmas at the moment. Um, I'm presenting this picture in evolutionary context and in global context. We live in an era where change is taking place at the macro level very, very fast. Economically, change is very fast, as we see with the current downturn, how quickly it arose. In terms of technology, change is coming about very, very fast. Movements of people are very fast at the moment. Of course, human beings have always been mobile. Since our time of coming out of Africa, we've been on the move all the time. However, our movements used to be slow. We used to walk. Now, millions of people can suddenly show up somewhere within a matter of a year. Just in the United States, there are between 1 and 2 million immigrants every year. And they show up just like that. It's not a slow process. It's very rapid. The movement in Europe is very rapid. If you look at the global map, there is movement from south to north. There's people moving up from Africa to North Africa into Europe, and then east to west. And this movement involves huge numbers of people. This, the consequence is what I've called sudden contact. Sudden contact is when groups come into contact with one another without pre-adaptation. And I've, explicitly borrowed from biologists. Pre-adaptation is the term that the biologists use. Pre-adaptation allows organisms to get ready and to interact with another organism without becoming extinct. Uh, in the natural world, what we find is extinction takes place often through sudden contact. As you know, variation in, among animals and plants is declining quite rapidly. The number the variation of animals and plants is going down. The same is true with human cultures and languages. Through sudden contact, we are losing cultures and languages quite rapidly. Uh, language death is a term that's used often it's actually the title of a very good book by David Crystal. If you look at the statistics, over the last 500 years, we have lost approximately seven, 8,000 languages. Languages are dying out at the rate of about two or three a month at the moment. There are hundreds of languages with only a few speakers. So we have a situation where, from an evolutionary perspective, We have huge movements of people, sudden contact taking place. Languages and cultures are dying out, and the question is, how do we organize ourselves so that these interactions and the dying out of languages and cultures is more controlled and does not lead to conflict? Because one of the consequences of sudden contact is when groups discover that they are dying out, they they react. And some of their reactions are radical. For example, terrorism I see to be a dysfunctional reaction when people realize that their lifestyle is under threat. How do we organize ourselves so that these reactions don't become disruptive? One approach I've said is the traditional assimilationist approach, where the Objective is to make people become as similar as possible so that we become one global village and we're very, very similar to one another in terms of lifestyle, etc. But I pointed out that there are limitations to this because psychological research shows that no matter how similar you make us, we can always find dissimilarities, we can always construct ways in which we are different a more recent alternative policy for managing our diversity is multiculturalism. And multiculturalism has been adopted officially in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and a number of other countries. And unofficially, it seems to be the politically correct way to go at the moment. And if you survey minorities, as I did recently in the States, you find most minorities go for multiculturalism. However, I would argue that multiculturalism has major problems, major shortcomings. First of all, the multiculturalism hypothesis is based on invalid assumptions about self-esteem and our openness to others. Second, multiculturalism leads often to problems of cultural relativism, and this can be very disruptive. So, I'm suggesting an alternative policy of omniculturalism. And uh, I think what I'm proposing is not necessarily the golden solution, but it's an avenue to get more discussion about policies of how we are to organize ourselves in the new world. I'll stop there for questions. <laughs>
0: We have time for questions, so if anyone would like to pose questions, the are, there is
2: One area which, one area which uh, I don't think we did touch on was um, how minority groups fare in a secular society, uh, for example, somewhere like France or maybe Turkey, or maybe a more extreme view of Iraq before it was destroyed. I think there's been a study undertaken on <coughs> um, uh, Muslim happiness in the UK and in uh, France and uh, it was claimed that the uh, the study showed that uh, Muslims were found to be happier in France because they said they knew they were coming to a secular society and they knew what, that they'd have to make some sacrifices. Whereas over here, because they were coming to a multicultural society, they weren't really sure what was uh, required of them. Yes,
1: yes. Thank you for the question. Um, The challenge of how to organize a society such as France or in England, uh, when a large number of the immigrants are Muslim, I think this this is going to be with us for the next few decades. Um, I've discussed it in relation to identity, and I've claimed that Muslim communities around the world, not just in Western Europe, are experiencing a collective identity crisis. and I think The way to look at the experience of Muslims in Western Europe is in relation to that collective identity crisis. Now what is that crisis about? I've discussed it in relation to the new global American dilemma. American policy has been uh, sort of with two branches. On the one hand, America and most European countries have followed this, have talked about support for openness, and democracy, and freedom, etc. On the other hand, if you look at policy, Western policy in Muslim countries over the last, let's just stick to the last 50 years. It has actually been absolutely the reverse of that. They have supported dictatorships, again and again. Um, just this summer, I had the opportunity to, to give evidence at the Senate, the US Senate, and you know I said again, look, you're supporting the Saudis, the Mubarak's, all the dictators in that part of the world, and you're saying you're supporting democracy. This is nonsense. How is this linked to the uh, dilemma in Muslim countries It's linked in this way, secular opposition groups in Muslim countries are basically either in jail or they're abroad or they're killed. And this is because Western supported dictators follow that policy. If you happen to be a secular politician in Egypt, you're either in jail or you're abroad or you're dead. And uh, the Egyptians happened to be supported, Mubarak supported by American funds. You know, My taxes go to support Mubarak. So the secular route at the moment has been closed. What is the alternative route? Well, the alternative route in Muslim countries is the mosque. Why? Because the dictators can't close the mosques. That's what the Shah discovered. The Shah could close everything else, but he couldn't close the mosque. So what you have is the alternative of an identity being formed politically that is mosque-based. And this is happening again and again in Muslim countries. Why is there not a third alternative? Well, the third alternative is not there because there is no political room for it. And I believe that dilemma has affected Muslims, not just in Muslim countries, but in countries such as the UK. Why? Because, at the moment, if you look at the identity, the perception of identity of Muslims in the West, it's still very much linked to the global situation. It's not nationalized, it is internationalized, so when you think about the experiences of Muslims in France or the UK, it seems to me you, you have to go beyond just the national borders. You have to look at the international scene, because what they are worried about is not just what's going on in Lyon, it's what's going on in the Middle East and other countries. Yeah, I
2: think I probably phrased the
0: question back, I Sorry.
1: Asking,
2: I, w- I wasn't specifically asking about Muslims, although I did okay. mention Yes, yes. Um, what I was looking at was um, there are so many diverse groups in this country, different religions, would it not make sense um, to uh, for this country to become a secular society so that it could support a whole range of different groups rather than have the Anglican church as the head of the uh, the country.
0: Can I, can I <laughs> just... Uh, yes, uh, please. We have some more questions, so I'll uh, I can
1: talk afterwards. You yes. can, okay. exactly.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, we have a question here, and then we have a question at the back. And then Thank you. Back um,
3: I, I very much like the uh, the concept of omniculturalism. I think it's very interesting. Um, what worries me about it in the context of globalization is that uh, it seems to be addressing issues that, in a sense, are not fundamental. If we look at the major population movements that are coming about as a consequence of globalization, the principal levers for those seem to be economic inequalities. Now, if we think in terms of uh, something like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, then the suggestion is that before we start thinking about Issues to do with identity, issues to do with esteem. We have to think about the the satisfaction of basic needs. So I wonder whether it isn't premature to be thinking about something like omniculturalism as a solution to the problems of globalisation when it is so clear that, that there are massive, enduring, and very difficult to shift economic Uh, inequalities. And these themselves, of course, have psychological roots. And maybe that's where we should be looking first of all.
1: Yes. Very good question. Um, (coughs) Let me start by saying something about Maslow's hierarchy. Um, I would argue that um, Maslow's hierarchy is an interesting hierarchy, but a better Adaptation is what's called the ERG model, which actually assumes that motivations can be um, activated uh, simultaneously and in a much more complex way uh, than than the hierarchy Maslow suggested, for example, um, I could be motivated uh, certainly by you know basic needs like hunger, et cetera, but I, it could be that ideology will lead me to do all kinds of things that, that sideline my hunger or even my need to live. You know. I, so I think the situation in terms of the hierarchy is more complex than, than Haslow would put it, uh, but I take your point that the vast majority of humanity we know is preoccupied with basics like do i have you know can i find enough food to eat for tomorrow and something like 50% of the population is still living on less than 2 dollars a day so uh, you know i take that point that it is a big challenge however i would still contend that the the biggest challenge we have at the moment is how to organize ourselves so that differences do not become an obstacle and we don't continually get into wars. Now, the differences I'm talking about can sometimes be trivial and sometimes can be quite large ideological differences. But. We have to work out some kind of a policy that makes more sense. I accept that the economic needs of the vast majority of people are great. And that's what's making them move to different countries and different regions. But we still have the challenge of once they move, even if their economic needs are to some to a great extent, satisfied. What do we do about the differences that keep getting highlighted? So, uh, in a sense, we 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 are not going to get rid of the other problem.
0: There's a question there.
1: Hello. Um.
4: My first question is: I was wondering, um, how do you ex- How do you? F- Expect multiculturalism to work in this present day and time within this culture and civilization when in the past I haven't seen the practice of multiculturalism work in any other great civilization you know I mean I feel that it's going to be extremely difficult for somebody who's especially if they're devout in their belief and they're practicing Jew or they're practicing Muslim to have um, true um, respect for each other when the very doctrine they are part of teaches them to favor one over the other. And my second question is: How can pe- you expe- um, expect people to be equals without being biased in some way, shape, or form? You know, because there's an old saying that you know you you know, a servant can't love two masters because he will love one and he will hate the other. Um, I was just wondering, you know, how do you, you expect peoples from different parts of the world to overcome these types of um, issues and, and you know, insecurities that they have developed over years?
1: Well, I think that the first question you have really leads to a solution in the sense that you're pointing to the historical nature of our challenge. You know, the, the, the whole challenge of how to organize societies when there are so many differences is not new of course. You know, we go back let's say to the Roman Empire. They had exactly the same challenge. How do you organize an empire when there are so many differences? And they came out with some interesting principles. Um, now, of course, at that time they had slaves. They had all kinds of things that, w- hopefully, we we don't we have less of. There is still slavery, but it's it's less of a problem. Um, so, it is one approach to look at this historically and see ourselves as having a challenge that has been around for a very long time. How to organize differences? How to organize societies where there are huge differences, Um, and you're saying, well, in the second question, how can we be hopeful when in the past we haven't succeeded? Well, certainly we can point to societies where there has been greater success. For example, at the present we can find societies where cultural diversity is, is managed more successfully than others. Uh, for example, it seems to me the fact that um, in South Africa they didn't have huge bloodshed in the transition from pre- to post-apartheid. That was a great success. You know, we have had great successes. Of course, there are economic inequalities continuing, but one of the key secrets, I think, is leadership. They had Mandela at the right time. Uh, why is it that some movements fail, others don't? That's where I think you need the right kind of me- leadership. Unfortunately, in some parts of the world, the leadership we have had has not provided uh, the direction that would lead to peace and peaceful relationships between groups. So I do think that in some instances, leadership is critical. You know, Why have we had such a terrible mess out of American policies in the last eight years, well, I think the fact that Bush was in power was a big factor. If we'd had somebody else, um, I think we, we, almost anybody else would have been better.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, we have a question here.
1: Um, when you um, identified as a problem, focusing on being special and being different too early, the sort of self-esteem psychology in uh, you suggested that it isn't a question of doing away with it, it's a question of emphasising commonality first and later focusing. Mm-hmm. So I wondered, have you had thoughts about when is the right time? Excellent question. That, that I really need developmental psychologists here to help me. Um, I, I haven't given that Enough thought, but it's the kind of thing that developmental psychologists could could contribute to. Um, what struck me going into the education system of different countries—I mean, I was struck. Actually, I, I, I taught for three years uh, in, in Sweden, and found that they were following um, a mixed bag of tricks. There, they were trying almost everything because they, you know, out of nine million. One million Swedes was born outside Sweden, and they're having tremendous problems absorbing uh, immigrants. They have the same problems. You know, What do you do with differences when you have all these kids, and some of them are minorities and underperforming? What kind of feedback do you give? Now the American answer so far has been, well, you tell them they're great. You know, and, and so you go to underperforming schools, terrible, really very poor sloppy conditions where 10-year-olds can hardly read, and they're being told every child is a star, and if they happen to be a minority, the teachers are actually quite frightened of saying anything else. Uh, I think this is an appalling situation. It's it's doing the minorities harm, because if my kid is underperforming, and you're telling my kid you're brilliant, you know you're a star. You're not doing me a favor or that kid a favor. So, I, to, in answer to your question, I haven't thought about it enough, but I think it's something that developmental psychologists could 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 do very well. <laughs>
0: a question there in the middle and then lots of good evening yeah. no. hello I'm trying to keep everyone in mind but we have hello, can everybody hear me? Oh.
5: Yeah. Hi. thank you very much for your lecture the question I had was relating to an individual in a multicultural society because what I see sometimes happens is that people who are um, who are considered to be uh, a part of minority or a part of a certain culture especially in a second generation they don't actually have those differences mm-hmm. and I have personally confronted people who are supposed, supposedly from a different culture and said well what is your culture tell me about it and they went. Well, I'm actually British. I don't know anything about that culture, and they, I haven't haven't received that. But they're actually being imposed certain things upon them. And um, how do you deal with it? Because sometimes they end up forming certain groups and making things up.
1: Yes. Yes. That, that, that's a very good point. I mean, that's one of the weaknesses of assimilationist policy. It's exactly that, where um, even if you get to a stage where people are more similar, they can, others can construct differences. I make a distinction between actual and symbolic differences. I'm reminded of a panel I was sitting, uh, I, I, I was asked to respond to a t- group discussion where um, seven or eight, I can't remember the number, of immigrant women were presenting on their cultures. And the first one stood up, and I think she was Greek, and she was talking about Greek culture. And she said, we Greek women are very different from these American women. We give our importance to our families, our children, our, you know, our cooking. And then the next one stood up, you know, um, we Arab women are very different from these American women. We love our children and we, you know, and, the, and every one of these immigrant women stood up and said, we're different from the Americans because we give importance to family and our cooking and, and I said, well, actually, I know some American women who, by the way, <laughs> love their children and, you know, um, this fabrication, reconstruction of the, uh, of who we are and we're not like you, that goes on and it's certainly part of the process. Uh, in social psychology, of course, um, Henri Tajfel's social identity theory emphasizes this need for distinctiveness. And um, it, it's, it's something that has always been very important to human beings, it seems to me. Um, people are threatened by too much similarity. Uh, if, if I say to you, you know, gosh, do you have a twin? Because somebody I just saw looks exactly dressed in the same way. Somehow this is threatening to us. Um, we don't like to be completely the same. So what's happened in the states is we have a complete manufacturing industry now where the manufacturing is about minority cultures. For example, Kwanzai is something that is celebrated by African Americans around Christmas. I have had African American students tell me about Kwanzai and, and as if it's been there for thousands of years. And uh, as I mentioned to them that actually this seems to be something fairly recent that people have created, and they're sometimes offended by this. Um, you know, we manufacture. Differences. We do this all the time. Right.
0: There was a question right
6: here. I'm very sympathetic to this. Uh, I was exposed to this kind of omniculturalism, it's pretty positive. Uh, But I'd like you to come back a little bit to what you said about evolutionary psychology and, and build a bit on. Why is it we? um, Why is it useful to discriminate against others? And uh, my feeling is that a lot of the theories is we create others so that we can create our our own identity. And I was wondering whether this wasn't an easy way for the management of our aggressive tendencies. Right, so we always have a bias toward attribution of problem to other people and mm-hmm. obviously this is a universal uh, whenever there are problems uh, and when we want to do something it's and that we can't do it we feel some aggressive feelings and it's much more practical you know if uh, for the group if there's yeah. another one so uh, how can we cope with this and, and and another way of doing that, and maybe uh, the positive thinking is part of the solution, mm-hmm. is uh, having a project, right? Mm-hmm. And, and this is something that has seemed to be completely missing. And unfortunately, this is very often the solution to unite uh, population in difficult conditions, which what dictators do. I mean, it's pretty yes. common. Yeah. So yes. Uh, is there a way that you address this constructive project parts of of the solution.
1: Yes. Well, your your question is very fundamental, because it comes back again to the plasticity and the limits to the plasticity of human beings. Um, One of the unfortunate themes in human history is war and conflict and prejudice and discrimination. And, And the question is, well, how can we change this? and to what extent. And of course, some evolutionary psychologists would argue that you cannot change this uh, much because uh, there is a tendency for humans to have preferences for, for their own genetic type. And of course, they will fight against others who are genetically dissimilar, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that kind of genetic-based argument um, I think that is at the intergroup level too simplistic because if we look at major wars, think about the Second World War, the First World War. Even if we accept the assumption that phenotype somehow reflects genotype, which is too simplistic, uh, it seems to me that the combinations of nations fighting one another, you know, the Germans fighting the English. Uh, and the the English were allied with the Chinese and the Indians, it doesn't make sense. Uh, So I don't think at the big picture level, uh, the simple genetic arguments put forward by some make sense. However, at the more micro level, when we think back to processes like displacement of aggression that Freud talked about, That I see to be very powerful and, unfortunately, a universal. Uh, Again and again, we find dictators managing to manipulate situations by creating an external enemy. Uh, I've actually recently finished a project that uh, is entitled Mutual Radicalization, how Ahmadinejad and Bush supported one another. You know, by, by finding that external enemy, you mobilize internal support and you displace aggression. So that I see to be something absolutely crucial that, that somehow we have to deal with in our education system. Now, how do we deal with that? I think the way to do it again might be to explore this issue of commonalities, to teach people about commonalities earlier. Um, it's not going to be the only solution. How,
6: how would that be a displacement of aggression? You see, right. as long as you focus on identity, yes. this aggression goes nowhere, hence the project issue. Sounds
1: yes, sounds well c- certainly you, you're thinking I, I guess about practical projects the superordinate goal idea. And that's certainly wonderful. Um, My assumption, actually, this omniculturalism project started with this notion of superordinate goals. How can you get a project, if you like, large enough for everyone to become absorbed in? But I, I take your point. It is a big challenge.
0: Right. We have so many people wanting to uh, ask questions that I'll have to be a bit more uh, controlling after <laughs> going back. If you do. uh, We don't have much time, so I'll have to take three more questions. Uh, Professor Morgan flew in this morning. He's tired, so let's be kind to him. Uh, there is one question here.
6: I'd like to uh, take uh, some questions forward, which I think have been in, in, in the room already. You seem to suggest a kind of an educational idea of starting with commonalities and then going to differences. But where, what are the commonalities? Uh, if I look at my, my daughter at school, uh, is, it, is it chemistry? Uh, but when you, go, when you comes into role models, uh, it, it's clearly very difficult identify the commonalities, because you have, to, uh, you have to refer to George Washington, maybe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that clearly doesn't carry if you have to educate in India, mm-hmm. uh, or, or something like that. So how, how do you solve, where are the commonalities?
1: Excellent question. Um, I think that this is where research in areas like psychology comes in. I believe that we have in social psychology for example in ethology we have identified pretty clear universals uh, things that have to be there for us to call something a human community let me give you an example what are we doing now we are turn taking if we stop turn taking communication would end within that turn taking there are Ideas of Rights and Duties I Would argue that there's clear evidence that From the animal world to us. There's a continuity in Practices of Rights and Duties not ideas but practices for example uh, there's research now with monkeys showing that if you train monkeys, for example, we train monkeys to do a task, and we give them grapes for reward. We've trained two monkeys, we give them both grapes. Then, we get them to do the task, and the second monkey, we don't give grapes, we give something that the monkey likes less, like carrots. The monkey that we give the lesser reward to acts up immediately. Because it realizes, hey, uh, this, is, this is not good. Uh, you know, I have the right to agree. Now, exa- obviously, I am ascribing that right. But my view is that in practice, there are certain commonalities, <laughs> rights and duties, that are common to human beings in our practices, not just in our ideas. And there are others that, it seems to me, in, in psychology we can identify. So I'm sort of publicizing the psychology. <laughs> we need to hire more Thank psychologists. You. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> well, we'll welcome that one. I mean, <laughs> um, we, there was a question. Well, I think person left. And then, so there is, sorry. There is one, yes, one final question there.
7: Um, uh, if we come back to the notion that in order to define myself I need to um, acknowledge your existence so us exists in relation to we isn't also the problem with at least in this conventionally called western world, the fact that the globalization in its economical trend seems to carry a very contradictory injunction whereby you have to be yourself, find your true self but at the end of the day the message seems to be that well, if you want to be successful, you have to fit a certain model, which then leads back to the frustration that you were talking about. I am myself, I'm great, I must be the greatest, but that doesn't help me because I can't compete in the market. So how do we then, how, you know, doesn't that also explain this allure, alluring attraction that the myth of community has the way that Sigmund Bauman talks about it?
1: Well, certainly, identity construction is is challenging in the global context at the moment. Um, I've talked some about something I call um, the good copy problem. The good copy problem is. Uh, for example, ex- it was experienced women, by women going into management at one time, where the, the, the model for the manager was a male, <laughs> and they had to try to become that. And you can also, you can't become it, you can't become the model. You can only be a good copy of that model. So th- that is certainly a pervasive problem. Uh, but the issue comes back to how plastic we are, how much we can be molded or remolded. Is it the case that humans have to define themselves and come to know themselves with respect to an other who they must see as different? Is that the case? I don't know. Is it the case that in order to, to define myself, I have to define you as different? I'm not sure. It's a question of how malleable are we? Can we, can we be reeducated to See ourselves differently. And again, it comes back to basic cognitive processes such as categorization. You know, can we be educated to categorize in a different way? I think we can because we have now started to categorize animals in a different way, for example. We are now thinking of animals as not so different from us, as being on a continuum and having rights and duties, or rights at least. And for some pet owners, duties as well.
0: Right, well, the, uh, I was going to take one more question. Uh, I, was, uh, I, I have the privilege of making this final question. I'm going to use that <laughs> privilege. Uh, if you're placing quite a strong emphasis on the educational system. In your proposal, uh, it seems to me that it is quite a heavy burden, in fact, that you are placing in an institution that can cope up to a point with the very fundamental questions you are raising. You know, defining what we share, defining what is common to humans, defining uh, how, when we are going to start doing that. Do you think schools alone can cope with that? And isn't it the case that these processes are, in fact, spread in uh, societies at a much more fundamental level? They started with a the family. They are ingrained in everyday practices. And they spread to very large societal uh, processes, like social influence, uh, and so on and so forth. So it, you know, as a provocation, I would say right. it's a wonderful proposal, but it strikes me as too much of a simplistic proposition mm-hmm. because I don't think schools alone will be able to cope with the burden you're placing in their hands. Oh,
1: I completely agree with you. Um, I would like to, to to be able to say well. You know, we should take up this project with the family, with the local community, with you know. uh, But what can we control immediately? Uh, I would like to be a complete dictator and and take over everything. Uh, But um, of course, we can't control everything. We have to start with institutions that are uh, formally in control of of the kinds of ideas we have. Um, And of course, the notion is that eventually through institutions such as the schools, we will be able to feed back into the family and and work that way. I mean, these are long-term projects. But let let me counter that by saying that If we take the example of multiculturalism, multiculturalism actually was brought in very effectively at two levels. One was, if you go to a place like Canada or Australia, one was through the government. So for example, in Canada, they have what's called a multicultural directorate with funds and they channel funds. And through those funds, they implement projects in neighborhoods and communities and schools. So at the level of the government, you need policy. And at the level of the institutions, you need policy. And I completely agree, it won't work just sticking with schools. You need the sort of government levels and and somehow to filter it through to communities and families. But how did multiculturalism become so powerful? 30 years ago it wasn't around. It became powerful because people in government, decision makers, channeled resources to propagate multiculturalism. And now, lo and behold, we do surveys and we find minorities who 30 years ago had never heard of multiculturalism suddenly say, this is our preferred policy. So. I would agree with you on the general thrust that you need a broad approach where the family is involved, where all kinds of institutions are involved, but I would be more optimistic in the sense that I think it can happen in a matter of decades once governments get behind it and once they put resources into it uh, from the kindergarten level upwards and neighborhoods.
0: on that note, let me thank uh, Professor Patali Mogadan for his uh, brilliant lecture and uh, for a very enlightening discussion. Thank you for thank having me. I enjoyed it. Thank me. you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much.